the key is really to communicate with with the people who are working for you, you know, be it your agency staff, your bank staff, and your substantive staff. And certainly we've picked up over the last few years and, you know, the kind of COVID situation in the United Kingdom will will only accelerate this in that people people want a more um a more flexible kind of work. Certainly, you know, we've we've seen research that's been done with different generations, for example, and you know the the kind of generation that you call the millennials, they're looking for a much more flexible um work life than say someone from Generation X like myself. Um so they that that kind of uh the demand is there for for more flexible work, and I think certainly organisations such as the NHS, where you know we're we're committed to increasing the number of staff who are employed, either in a, a bank setting or in a substantive setting. Welcome to the Shifts Happen podcast. We're your co-hosts Lucy Whittington and Scott Irwin from High Hand having conversations about workforce planning and managing flexible teams to see how shifts happen in different circumstances. For us, dynamic staffing is key to having a flexible, engaged, and productive workforce. And we invite you to join us as we talk to people-powered business owners, those working in large organizations, along with commentators and consultants about the future of work and workforce planning. So this conversation must have been what it was like to speak to the Beatles you know, during their Hamburg residency in the early 60s, you know, far before the Ed Sullivan show thrust them to international stardom. See, I was thinking of it more with a Geordie reference of it being like knowing Ant and Deck when they were in Biker Grove. Completely over my head, Lucy. <laughs> Currently, the National Workforce Deployment Lead for the National Vaccine Program at NHS England. That's a big job. Prior to this, in two years, Dominic headed a team that saved over 1.2 billion pounds in temp spend for the NHS. By working collaboratively with agencies, the NHS has been able to review and improve its own bank workforce. We talked with Dominic about how what started out as a finance project then became an engagement project, and that it was actually hygiene factors, not rates of pay, that made the biggest difference to building a better bank for the NHS. And we also settle, or at least discuss, the argument of who are the most famous Geordies. Welcome, Dominic, to uh, Shifts Happen. And we just want to find out, so that we get a bit of context. Where exactly are you today and what have you been doing already? Uh, I'm in lovely city of Newcastle-Pontine today, just over in the uh, northeast of England. And uh, so far today, we've had a, a sort of all-people webinar with our uh, with our director of uh, chief people officer. So that's uh, that's been my day so far. Are you at home or are you in the office? I'm at home. I'm at home. Um, we're all working from home at the moment, so uh, you know, longing to get back in the office, but. Uh, you know the current regulations mean that we're we're all at home and uh, you know making the best of what what we're doing. Right. Fantastic. Well, you mentioned being in Newcastle, a place I've only passed through and but been fascinated by. So, in advance of this, knowing this, Dominic, we took an internal poll of our team. Uh, for what I'm told, is the most famous Geordie, if I'm using as an American the right phrase. And there was a bit of a, a divide between Ant and Deck. Rowan Atkinson or Alan Shearer. As the American, I, I champion Tony Scott, 
the director of Top Gun, one of the greatest movies of all time. As our local expert, uh, can you can you tell us who is the most famous Jordy, or is the answer all of the above? Well, Ant and Deck are actually two separate people. A lot of people don't know that, but uh, certainly from from my point of view, I tend to sort of veer towards sporting celebrities. So uh, you know, someone like uh, Brendan Foster or uh, Alan Shearer would probably be uh, be, be my choice. For our North American listeners, this is uh, English football. These guys aren't picking up uh, and spiking American footballs for touchdowns. Excellent. Well, should we, we, we dive into the, uh, I guess, kind of actual meat of the conversation. And, and, and Dominic, maybe just tell us a little bit more about, about your current role and, and, you know, the aims that, that you have and a lot of the work that you've been doing, you know, not to lead you in too much of a direction, but to reduce temp spend in the NHS to date. Yeah, so my role is to lead the national program around uh, temporary staffing. So I took on that role about four years ago. And uh, when when I joined NHS Improvement, we we kind of came into a situation where there was a lot of agency spend, certainly historically, um, it was really high in the NHS for, for various reasons. And uh, there wasn't a great deal of control there. So the, uh, the, the kind of the, the purchases that organisations or NHS trusts in our case were making tended to be more kind of spot purchases. So they, they bought staff when they needed them and there wasn't a lot of uh, coordination there. So one of the things that uh, my team did and with the with the support actually of an awful lot of people in the trusts, you know, whatever I talk about here, it's the, the credit is theirs rather than uh, rather than ours. We introduced a system of price caps. So unless unless there's a real clinical emergency, the, the price that uh, an organisation pays for a temporary member of staff it, up from an agency is capped at a certain amount. Um, we also introduced um, approved frameworks as well. So the purchasing is now around about 95% done through um, approved procurement frameworks, which gives organisations a, a great deal of assurance on the, the price, the quality of the staff that they're bringing in. Uh, and, and also it's, it's kind of uh, it, it manages the trust responsibilities around procurement rules as well. So we, uh, we, we get that assurance in there and uh, and that kind of contributed alongside the agency rules towards bringing agency costs down, um, certainly in terms of cost per shift that we paid on all staff groups over the sort of first three years of the, the programme. And really that that brought that brought a lot more of the shifts onto bank, which is again something we've been uh, we've been striving to do. But I think it also made the the agency market uh, certainly a little bit more sort of responsible. So they they started to work with us a lot more um, with the with the approved frameworks in particular. Uh, so we think it's even though we've taken sort of 1.2 billion out of the sort of agency spend and mainly reinvested that back into bank. Um, we, we feel now that the NHS has is on a better footing with with agencies and uh, certainly through the, the approved frameworks. The, the taxpayer thinks you don't. Kind of Layness to this and may not um, a understand the kind of breadth of what the NHS uh, does. Um, you said across all staff groups, just as some examples, 
Are we talking, you know, are we talking just nursing staff? Are we talking, you know, uh, other types of ancillary staff? What are, what are typical um, roles that, that would be covered by this temp spend? So the majority of it, is, as you'd imagine, is, uh, is nursing staff, uh, nursing and midwifery staff um, and uh, doctors, so medical, medical staff, including dentists. Um, we've also got uh, people who work in laboratories, so healthcare scientists, um, what we call admin. So that covers a, a broad breadth of, uh, of different roles within the NHS and also the kind of ancillary roles. So you know, really vital people such as cleaners, porters, security staff. So the, the whole breadth of staff who work in the NHS uh, can be procured through agencies and we have those rules in place for the purchase of, uh, of all of them. So Dominic, I know you still see a role for, for agency staff you know, as part of the staffing solution, and I've seen the percentage of 4% used as a target. Could you just talk a bit in, with why that is the, the target number if, if I, or if I'm actually off in that? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a kind of aspirational target when we first started because the, the agency spend was around about 8% of total pay bill. And, you know, that, that was quite uh, high. In the intervening years, actually, the demand for shifts has gone up. So the, the spend that we've brought, the, the amount of spend that we've brought down has mainly been actually through price rather than volume reduction. And uh, and so the, the percentage of total pay bill has come down over the years it's it's actually around about 3.5 now it's gone below um four which is if you look back sort of 20 30 years it's kind of a, a historic low um that, that we're, we're doing mainly because we've created the alternatives of, of banks and promoting them a little bit more so they that, that that as a percentage was an aspirational one we've we've hit that target i, I think now it's it's really around getting the sort of agency spend that we have concentrated in the right areas. So, you know, agencies are really good at providing short term staff into kind of specialist roles. And that's really what we want to work with the agencies to, to help us with in the future, where we're buying kind of lots and lots of staff from from agencies. Actually, some of that could be procured through banks if, if we improve the banks that will then give uh, give that that volume of staff make that available to the trusts and make them less reliant on agency staff so for me that sounds you know it's the real demand and supply response that you do need that kind of flexibility to you know have those you know particular staff like you said who are specialists to come in from time to time but where you're seeing consistency you know, consistently that you're spending on what could easily be bank staff because they're roles that need fulfilling, you know, day to day, week to week, then that doesn't make sense to be using agencies. That, that, that's right. And agencies are really good. You know, they're, they're really good partner, you know, particularly the ones who, uh, who are working with the approved frameworks and supplying on price cap. You know, that they're, they're a vital partner to us in terms of delivering patient care. Um, but in in, in the longer term, um, we'd like to procure more through banks and uh, and get those staff onto uh, onto staff banks. And there's a there's a there's a kind of a, cho- a personal choice thing there as well. A lot of staff who uh, who work for us through agencies have have had that you know make that choice. They've, they've got an open offer of a a staff bank uh, contract. 
but they choose to work through agencies. So we need to work with uh, with staff to look at you know the the reasons why they choose agency, so the good things that agencies do for them, and try to improve our our bank offer in in that sort of direction. And Dominic, I know a lot of the work that you you've been doing of late is trying to help uh, trusts and other NHS bodies build out their bank staff. Maybe just for a, a terminology check uh, for all those, you know, bank is ultimately a, a flexible pool of, of of workers within, yeah, if you will, a trust or organization that maybe similar to an agency is able to uh, pick up, you know, last minute work, but as opposed to an agency, which often, you know, is an external sort of the employment relationship, has a direct employment relationship and perhaps would be more directly trained and, and engaged with a particular body. Um, and, and maybe just talk to the process of how you've seen, I guess, good trusts build up banks um, internally and, and what's worked and maybe for those that have struggled, what's some of the challenges? Um, various ways, actually, that trusts have built up uh, banks. I mean, one one is that uh, that they've built up sort of collaborative banks with their neighbours. So, you know, something we hear quite a lot is that uh, certainly in in terms of the way that foundation trusts were set up, um, in terms of competing with uh, with, with other organisations, bringing together a collaborative bank takes that out of the equation. So you've actually got a pool of staff. Which is a kind of regional pool, uh, a, a bit wider than the uh, the trust itself, and that gives them the flexibility to fill vacancies where they arise. So it may be that uh, some trusts have certain times that are busier than others, and a, a larger bank enables that flexibility to take place. I think as well, you know, there's there are many reasons, uh, there's many ways that. Trusts have improved their their bank offer. So when we did some initial work, we found that for some trusts, they were actually paying um, bank staff at a lower end of the agenda for change um, scale point that, that the member of staff was on. So you know, a lot of organisations have uh, have got to the stage where they're paying what the member of staff's um, substantive contract is paid at. Or you know, some are paying towards the, the the higher end of the the pay scale, as as we know agencies uh, pay up. The price caps are set at the at the top. So there are various bits around pay. Things are things are hygiene factors as well. Um, they they are really important to staff. We find when we when we look at these things. So where a bank starts paying weekly instead of monthly, that can improve uptake because people value. Um, being paid for their shifts quicker. It's something that agencies do really well. And also the, uh, the onboarding process. So actually signing up for a bank, um, the banks who've been able to do that quicker have tended to be more successful in signing people up. Again, that's something that agencies do well and that we're keen to sort of replicate. Because mm, there's such goodwill, uh, you know, I certainly have experienced that in my time in, in the UK towards working and, you know, just engaging with the NHS. There seemed to be a real pride for people to be directly associated. What I'm hearing from you is that uh, trying to convince individuals to move from agency to bank is about some of the practical, uh, you know, if you will, matters. You call them hygiene factors that you know, otherwise, if addressed, you would see people quite proud to work directly with an NHS trust. Is that fair to say? It, it is, yeah. I mean, the, the, 
obviously you have um, some agency members of staff for whom it's the rate that matters, but in as we speak, roughly about 60% of all agency staff who we bring in, so 60% of shifts, are paid at our price cap, which means that uh, they're paid a very similar um, amount per hour than bank staff and substantive staff. So for 60% of staff are making the choice to work through agency, not because of rate, but because of other factors. And we really need to get underneath what those other factors are. And I think certainly the, the, the kind of hygiene factors of being onboarded quicker, um, being paid potentially quicker are all, are all important. But you, you, you're absolutely right, Scott. The, the sort of the NHS brand factor and you know, the, the opportunity to, to work in the NHS is also a pull factor that, uh, you know, we, we, we like to think that we're making, we're making something off when we, uh, when we go to offer staff a bank contract. So when you say, you know, you're trying to uh, see the examples that agencies set or, you know, work out what those factors are that are attracting people, are there some more that you're currently aware of or, or have a, an understanding of, you know, is it the flexibility? Is it the, the notice that they're given? Is it being able to work around, you know, other things going on in their life? Like how, you know, is it the process by which they can hear about shifts being available or the fairness of it? Like, are there any things that you already kind of have a feeling that you just haven't got the, the evidence yet to say, actually, we know it's this reason. I mean, certainly the flexibility is a really important one around why um, why people choose sort of agency stroke bank work as opposed to uh, substantive work. That's it's a really interesting one, actually, because the, the, the perception and the reality sometimes is quite different on, on a, what a substantive contract is in the NHS. So, the, the perception sometimes and some of the staff that we've spoken to, some of the groups of staff that we've spoken to, that they perceive that in order to become a substantive member of staff, they'd have to work sort of five days a week at the set number of shifts at set times of the day. Actually, in reality, the majority of organisations that we, we deal with are very happy to offer someone, for example, a two day a week substantive contract which fits around their other responsibilities. So, you know, the, the, there is a, there is a job for us, I think, to get out there, certainly, you know, with the, uh, with the people plan that we've just published in mind to get out there and get that message out because there's probably, and we, we saw this during the pandemic, there are probably quite a few staff who are currently working in banks or in agencies who are doing very similar hours each week, um, working in very similar parts of the trust, i.e. probably working in the same ward on a, on a regular basis, have that book, have had that booking for, for some time now and, you know, are very valued from, from the trusts for, for doing that. You know, they're, they're almost kind of a, a substantive member of staff, but haven't made that move yet. And I think the, to be able to bring more staff on board substantively, there are probably staff within the bank, within the agency workforce who just need that reassurance that actually, yes, we can, we can employ you three days a week and you, know, you can come on board with us substantively. So the, there is a piece of work to do on there, I think. That's making me smile because that's the marketing problem. <laughs> Potentially. I'm, hearing, I'm hearing about a, a campaign here and maybe just to say, bring it back to you after having gone, which I love into the weeds of, of this problem. Dominic, you have such an interesting background, having obviously held 
you know, financial roles within trusts now working in this, um, you know, kind of NHS body. And also having been a, a elected official in, 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 a, in a city capacity in Newcastle, it seems like you're perfectly placed to both uh, run the numbers and then convince people of the merits of what we're doing. Maybe talk about how all of your uh, your kind of various aspects of your biography have, have prepared you for this. <laughs> I think in terms of certainly with the, uh, the the financial side of it, you know, my my sort of uh, my kind of role in in the team when I first came in, really, it was a finance project. So we we had a certain a set amount of uh, of savings that needed to be made made because we were spending too much it wasn't sustainable when when i first came in i think the program the aims of the program has kind of changed now because we've taken out the kind of the the, the bit of the the spend which you know was making it unsustainable um we've, we've now got the majority of shifts onto price cap and uh, and it's it's now kind of moving and i guess from a personal point of view i've had to sort of move my thinking towards a kind of more strategic more policy based kind of uh, uh program which is aimed at uh, improving banks improving really looking to get people who work in the nhs onto the, the most appropriate type of engagement for them so you know in, in if you look at, if you think of NHS employment or NHS engagement as a kind of continuum, and on the left hand, on the extreme left hand side, you've got um, off framework agency, and on the extreme right, you've got substantive contract. All of the kind of engagement methods that we have are, are kind of at various points on that on that line in terms of you know your sort of belonging, your commitment in inverted commas, to the NHS, although you know, I'm not saying that agency staff aren't committed, but in terms of contractual commitment to the to the NHS. And really what we're looking to do is move people along that line, but get them on the part of the line which is the most appropriate and, you know, making the assumption that our framework agency is never appropriate. You know, making sure that we have people who work regular shifts with us and want to be in a substantive contract, getting them into that contract people who work for uh, for an agency who want to get into bank work, making that happen and making sure that the the staff that we have working for us through agencies, are done, they come to us on framework and, you know, with all the assurances and that it's a sustainable cost. So you know, the, the bit of sort of uh, convincing, I, I guess, you know, my, my sort of brief foray into uh, the, the political world will will sort of help with that. But um, certainly, you know, I've got a really good team around me as well. And uh, they have lots and lots of skills in this area and uh, their backgrounds kind of lend itself to, uh, to executing this sort of task that we've got. So maybe you've, you've made the case to me. Dominic, so I, I'm an agency worker. Um, you, you, you get me on the phone. You, you, you sell me on the, the, uh, commitment and the direct kind of relationship, the excitement of working directly with the NHS. You promise me flexibility, um, that I wanted from the agency along with a rate that is at or around what I received before. I, I, I sign on the dotted line. I, I jump into the bank. Where, where does it go wrong? Dominic, if, if it does, when you see these transitions happen, and, and where does it go right? Um, well, from what, what we've seen, I mean, in terms of um, where it goes right, um, 
definitely the 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 majority of trusts um, when they do rotors, obviously the substantive staff go on there, and then next in line for the shifts are the bank staff. So automatically by signing up to the bank, you give yourself a greater choice of, of shifts within the trust. Um, and the majority of trusts now um, pay weekly, so that kind of matches what the the agency offer is. What we're finding as we as we improve banks and uh, some of the things that, that we're looking to improve, um, some of the lead times in getting people signed up um, could be better. So, again, that's that's something which is eminently fixable. And uh, we've got a lot of really good uh, examples of trusts that have kind of concertina that time down, obviously, without losing any of the governance aspect of, of getting people signed up. Uh, and, and signed on. There's some really good work going on at the moment around digital passporting. So that, that would be something where people sign, kind of sign up once for NHS work and their details are passed on electronically. So, you know, cuts down a lot of the, the kind of paperwork. Um, and I, and I think as well, you know, the, the, uh, the sort of utilization of, of bank workers as well. So when, when you sign on to the, the bank, as opposed to an agency actually, you know, being communicated with. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds a, a strange one, but we do, we do hear uh, instances where staff don't automatically receive an NHS.net email address. We'd like every bank member of staff to have one of those because actually that's the way that the trusts tend to do a lot of the communication. So things like newsletters, you know, making people feel involved with their, uh, their area so there are there are sort of little niggles with with bank work sometimes and we we do talk to bank workers um an awful lot and we, we pick these things up but uh certainly the direction of travel is very much in, in the right way and uh the bank if if someone's had an experience working on the bank sort of three or four years ago um i would urge them to sort of give it another go if if they felt they had a a bad time and also you know pick up the phone and, and speak to uh the the people in the temporary staffing office at the uh at the trust as well because you know again we, we tend to find that trusts are, are very sort of proactive and and very sort of approachable in 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 terms of advising people who want to join the bank mm. And, and you mentioned the word utilization, which which is a, is a, is a labor optimization uh, aficionado uh, perks my ear, ears, Dominic. Because in other contexts, what we often hear when people join, you know, perhaps an internal bank is, uh, I'm not getting as many shifts as I used to, or how am I guaranteed the work that I that I wanted? And a lot of this comes down to some of the tricky uh, planning around how many people to bring into your bank relative to how much work you're likely to have and when. Uh, curious how you see um, the trust you work with trying to solve this thorny problem. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably a problem that the agencies have too, as well. Um, we it, it became quite quite an acute one for for some areas uh, during during our first sort of COVID lockdown, and when when the NHS paused quite a lot of elective work um, because a lot of people who uh, who specialise in those areas that uh, that were stood down at the time suddenly found that actually because they're on a flexible contract either through agency or through bank the shifts they were previously working 
weren't there anymore because the the patients you know the, the, the that work was was paused for the duration of the of the sort of first wave of the pandemic so i think it's it's certainly that that kind of shift availability versus expectation is something that uh, that, that is you know if you can crack that up in terms of your temporary staffing as a trust you you're probably going an awful long way but uh, you'll always have people who are calling the temporary staffing office or the agency asking for more shifts you'll always have um people perhaps who are working in other specialties where you can't get them to work enough shifts you know they, you you wanting them sort of there every day because they're they're in a, a kind of shortage specialty or you know they've got skills that uh, that are in demand so we, you've always got uh, you've always got that kind of tension and i think with 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 banks um certainly the kind of technological uh, breakthroughs that we've made over the last few years in terms of rostering systems e-rostering in particular has been a really useful tool in order to make sure that uh, rostering is done kind of fairly it's done in a way that gives people as much notice as possible so you know bank shifts are made uh, are made people are made aware of bank shift availability a lot sooner um, and it enables also for the trust to, to manage its agency usage as well so those shifts become available to the agencies in good time but actually once it's been you know once we've ascertain that uh, the the bank perhaps won't be able to fill that that uh, that shift so there's a there's a lot kind of gone right in the last few years in order to improve that uh, that utilization i think we've seen that in the in the figures that uh, that we've had and you mentioned the the first lockdown um in in march and april of uh you know 2020 curious how this uh agency versus bank split manifest itself with that unique circumstance. And I'm sure Lucy will be curious to ask about mm. approaching the next uh, pressure point Coming of the next. winter to come. Uh, yeah. What would we expect? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly from uh, from our point of view, we, we learned an awful lot during that period. It has to be said, you know, we, we work very closely with our colleagues in the uh, approved frameworks and therefore alongside agencies. And also with uh, with outsourced bank providers and with trusts to kind of make sure that the the temporary staffing uh, supply was there when the patients needed it, you know, when the NHS w was asked to uh, to step up. So, you know, certainly providing staff for things like the Nightingale hospitals was a priority. Um, obviously, later got stood down, so needed to be flexible uh, on that side of things. But I think from from our point of view, um, and I, I guess the the work we've been doing on the the kind of substantive contract, some of that came from some of the stories we heard from bank staff. So we 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 had situations where some bank staff were actually um, coming to us because they they had no income, and that that was that was something because their service had been uh, paused within their trust. Um, they'd gone from having regular hours, you know, every week with with the trust to actually that service was paused. And because they were on a sort of temporary contract, so the, the choice on either side. <laughs> so mm -hmm. the, the, in in 
in some times the the person can say, well, you know, I, I don't want to work next week, and that's that's absolutely fine. That's part of the contract. In, on this occasion, the trust said, actually, because we've paused that service, we we don't need to employ the, the so many bank staff or so many agency staff. So we had people who you know, were left literally with with no income at a time when you know things were uh, things in that part of their elective service were were very quiet. So you know, we we that that kind of uh, sort of. Have you been able to? Did you were able, were you able to redeploy any of those staff into different areas? Could they take the skills they had, you know, and and you know, like you said, the Nightingale hospitals, for example, or areas obviously of the NHS that were increased demand for their services? Were you able to redeploy many? We were in some cases, yeah. I mean, that was that was a, a really good thing we were able to do, and obviously, you know, we took advice from the, uh, the sort of professional bodies. Uh, around that, as did as did all the uh, trusts. So making sure that you know, the the license that the particular professional was working under meant that they could be redeployed into a different service or a different part of the NHS. You know, in in some areas, we saw um, people sort of doc- doctors um, going in towards as um, you know kind of auxiliary nurses and helping out mm-hmm. in that way, which was which was great to see. You know we. We sort of pride ourselves in the NHS has been adaptable, and that was a, a really good sort of example of that. And I think for some of the staff, that was that was the route into work. And clearly, you know, we had other tasks such as test and trace that we've been able to uh, get people working on. So really, really vital work. Um, you know, obviously in the news quite a bit, and it people people will be quite quite familiar with the test and trace service, but you know, people. Doing work on on the phone, tracing individuals who might have had contact with um, people who tested positive for COVID, and that that needed a certain um, level of professional medical or clinical competence. So we've been able to redeploy people into that as well. So you know, obviously, uh, winter is coming, and with that, I'm assuming you would normally be expecting uh, you know an increase in absenteeism or just general you know cold and flu and and, and sickness, so you know, bank staff will be called upon more. Um, but obviously, compounded by COVID, um, you know, not only people perhaps being unwell themselves, but being asked to isolate. And again, you know, maybe they took a week off when they had a cold, but they they would have to take 14 days off now if they were being asked to isolate. So, kind of that that double combination of you know an extra. An, an extra option for being away sick, but also being asked to, you know, stay away. What What are your staffing concerns around that? Is it Is it back to knowing that you've got people who can be deployed across different areas that you've already discovered? Is it just about you make sure those banks are really resilient, or is it teeing up those agencies that that you may need them? Kind of where, where are your thoughts going at the moment? There's probably a lot of them. I appreciate. <laughs> There are, and can, can I answer all of the above? Um, of course. <laughs> from, certainly, from from our point of view, clearly winter. Generally, we we see uh, we see an uptick in things like sickness. With you know the uh, sort of winter flu season, it's uh, NHS staff are the same as the general population. We we get uh, we, we get higher levels of sickness in the winter, but uh, but also um, I think with with people self isolating and it's making sure that people know that if they are asked to self-isolate, there is someone to 
sort of step in and, and look after that. So give give the staff kind of security that they can do the right thing. So if they get that sort of pop up from their phone that says you know, you've been in contact with someone, you know, not to think, well, I, I need to sort of come in and soldier on, you know, a bit like, you know, when you sort of go into the office, you're not feeling that, that great, mm-hmm. you know, cold or flu or something like that, but you, you feel you've got to go in and kind of soldier on and, and, and do that. It's, it's kind of a different world now. The, the, yeah. With, with COVID, you really have to stick to, if you're asked to self-isolate, you must do it. And, uh, so the, the issue is that we need to increase the sort of capacity of banks. And also that, that word again, the utilization. So making sure that where we, we sign people up for banks, they've been offered shifts and we're using them. Um, that there is a, there is a bit of sort of use it or lose it about, uh, about that's people. If they don't get the shifts, we'll soon, um, deregister from banks and look elsewhere for, for those, uh, shifts. And also, you know, we're, we're working with our partners at the approved, um, procurement frameworks for, for the agencies to make sure that where, and it, it, in, in the second wave, actually so far, we found it tends to be more sort of local, um, requirements. So, you know, in, in terms of thinking about England at the moment, um, as we stand in sort of, November 2020, early November, we have issues in the northwest where the particular sort of particular parts of the NHS are stretched up there. So it's making sure that the temporary staff are available in those regions, um, whereas in other regions, you know, the, the, the activity may step up there at uh, at some point. So our role really is making sure that the the right staff are, the, are in the right place at the right time, and we work with our partners. To achieve that, hmm. and Dominic, I know as a uh, as a as a numbers guy, you'll have you know some projections on this. And if it's trade secret, uh, by all means, don't divulge. But uh, is there an expectation on you know how much additional you know sickness cover will be required in, in the next period of time? I've seen some statistics, for instance, that up to seven or eight percent of, of, of shifts were, were missed due to sickness or other perhaps COVID related illness in the first lockdown, which which often is around what you would, I think, typically see in a kind of winter scenario. Are we looking at 10 percent and up or are we more hopeful than that? Yeah, I think you know, in, in terms of the modeling, it's uh, not not something I've seen the sort of uh, the details of, but th- those figures do sound sort of reasonably ballpark. I mean, we we tend to work on kind of worst likely and you know most op- optimistic scenarios, so we work in a range. You know, it's kind of plan plan for the worst, and anything that if if that sort of happens to not be the case, then you know we can uh, we can work with that as well. But certainly, you know, we we'll be looking at unprecedented uh, levels of, of sickness, I suspect. Um, we've done a lot of work in recent years, actually a lot of successful work in reducing sickness in the NHS. So we've, we've got, you know, award-winning actually, um, staff wellness uh, resources that we have. You know, we've run lots of really good campaigns, which, which have been very effective. If you look at the kind of sickness figures over, over recent years, even with the winter, winter peaks that we have, that they are coming down. The underlying amount of sickness in the NHS is coming down, but uh, clearly, you know, this this winter will be different. Um, we've got people 
who've been asked to sort of self-isolate. You know, you, you might you might have people who kind of are asked to self-isolate once and then they have to do it again. And it, certainly for people like, like myself who have children going into school, um, we've already had one um, period where my son has had to self-isolate and every family will be in a in a similar position i suspect so we will have that to deal with and you know we are planning to do that and do you think that part of you know not only is it better from a, a management perspective um having a better you know a bank you can rely on but do you feel that you know workers would prefer to be part of a bank rather than relying on agencies to feel that they're you know they're on a contract and and they're more likely to get work as it's available I think so, and it's certainly the the work we're doing with uh, with sort of staff who engage with the NHS in, in various ways, you know, from agency staff to 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 our bank staff. That that sort of sense of belonging is something which is which is really important to a lot of them. So you know, you, you do get you do get staff who just want to do the odd odd shift here and there and are happy to work through an agency. And if that's you know if that's what they're happy with, that's that, that's absolutely fine. We, we value the time that they can spend in the NHS. But for a, a member of staff who wants to make a greater commitment to the NHS and sort of get involved a bit more, you know, either as a pathway towards getting substantive work eventually with us, career development or, you know, just kind of personal professional development or even just wanting the better choice of shifts and, uh, and that access to the kind of benefits of NHS employment, we're there to, to help them into that to that sort of employment. And we're, we're also keen to hear from uh, staff in terms of their views on you know, what would make our bank offer even better. Well, Dominic, maybe a, a parting question that we'll try to ask to all of our guests on, on the Shifts Happen podcast uh, but by way of context, you know, we love flexible work at Ships Happen and at Higher Hand. We, we think it's the way of the future, both in terms of what workers desire and also what can really benefit, um, I think, you know, companies as well. And we love bank staff. I, I call it the gateway drug into flexible work because a lot of the organizations that start using bank staff, perhaps for one purpose, realize, oh, wow, it's fantastic to have this flexible group of people around. And, wow, they like working flexibly. How much more can we do? So I see you as a pioneer um, at the forefront of this flexible work revolution. And with that in mind, what advice or kind of guidance would you give for other organizations in health or not that are looking to incorporate more of a flexible staffing model in their operation? Um, I, mean, I, I like the term gateway drug, but I, I guess I'd never get away with using that in, uh, in my professional life. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that one, uh, that, that one with, with yourself, Scott. But uh, from, from my point of view, I think the, the key the key is really to communicate with with the people who are working for you, you know, be it your agency staff, your bank staff, and your substantive staff. And certainly, we've picked up over the last few years, and you know, the kind of COVID situation in the United Kingdom will will only accelerate this. In that people people want a more um, a more flexible kind of work. Certainly, you know, we've we've seen research that's been done with different generations, for example, and, you know, the, the kind of generation that you call the millennials, they're looking for a much more flexible um, work life 
than say someone from Generation X like myself. Um, so they, that that kind of uh, the, the demand is there for for more flexible work, and I think certainly organisations such as the NHS, where you know we're we're committed to increasing the number of staff who are employed either in a, a bank setting or in a substantive setting. You know, you've got things in, in the UK, such as the, the 50,000 additional nurse pledge. You know, we're already getting, you know, getting on with that and we've delivered quite a lot of that already. But uh, you know, we're only going to achieve those kinds of uh, targets of recruitment by offering flexible work. So your know, bank Bank is a, a good one, but uh, we, we certainly were committed to making the substantive offer more flexible as well. And, you know, for, for, for example, for the sort of administrative staff in, in the NHS, homeworking will become more of, a, of something, you know, even after COVID, I suspect, will become more um, of something that will be part of the normal um, state of work. Whereas, say, a year ago, it was quite unusual and you know, th those changes will be made. So there'll be, there'll be a lot of, you probably hear the phrase a lot, uh, no going back after, after COVID. And that, that will be, that'll be something that uh, we will do. And I think as well, you know, for, for sort of clinical staff, the more flexible shift patterns and those much more flexible substantive contracts that we, we would like to see more people, um, come on to. Will be will become the norm as well. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Dominic, thanks so much for for joining us uh, today. And it's been very interesting. And just you know, it it goes to show that you can make those changes to you know the the makeup of where your staff uh, you know are being recruited from and how you're employing them, and even you know when you know less positive things happen or are thrust upon you and, and change has to be made that, that when you make those changes like you said you know good can come from it you know there's that increase in goodwill for the NHS has been incredible um, you know the opportunities for people to be given the flexible work that they've always wanted and, and the fact that you're paying attention to you know the patterns and the wants of people and but still recognizing but there is a role for agencies as well. I think that's really important. We don't want to be seen as agency bashing um, in any no. way. I think it's, it's finding that that place to deliver the best service as an organisation and to solve that. I've certainly found really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the point you make about agencies is a really important one. I mean, actually, you know, we've uh, in, in the last few years have actually purchased more shifts from agencies as, as an NHS. But uh, obviously, you know, the majority, vast majority through approved frameworks on price cap and at a, at a sustainable um, sort of economic cost to the NHS mm. while ensuring that the staff are of the, the right quality. So the agency sector has worked well with us uh, in previous years, and we, we hope to continue that. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to settle back, turn on a Top Gun movie, have Alan Shear greatest highlights of, of Newcastle United on the other channel, and enjoy my first night of lockdown uh, dreaming of Newcastle Dominic. There you go. <laughs> have to get you up here one day when, when you can. <laughs> There we Thank go. Thank you so much for joining us, Dominic. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
was such a great insight into how the NHS have tackled reducing temp spend. But in the context of keeping and improving options for flexible and dynamic working, it was really great that Dominic was able to share what worked well and the role that agencies played in the process. Knowing that there were other factors at play that encouraged the uptake of bank work, such as frequency of pay and onboarding, I'm sure is very useful information for other organizations. And his closing observation that the demand for flexible working is very much there and needs to be considered backs up our own philosophy on the future of work. And Dominic, with your current work with the vaccine rollout, Godspeed and good luck. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Shifts Happen podcast. There's more episodes where this came from with more conversations about making people-powered work work better. If you'd like to ask us questions or have suggestions or would like to hear a feature in a future episode, do drop us a line. Or if you think dynamic staffing is something you'd like to explore for your own organization, we're always excited to have the conversation. Find out more and get in touch on the hirehand.co.uk website or find us both, Lucy Whittington and Scott Irwin, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.